All right, if you have your Bible, let's open to the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're going to go to chapter 2 today. And chapter 2 has 49 verses in it, and it's increasingly hard to go through the chapters of Daniel in one setting. And so here's what I'm absolutely certain about today. I'm going to disappoint nearly everybody uh, who I said too much or I didn't say enough. This is an eschatological passage. This is a passage that has a vision of what the last days will be like. Eschatology is the latter things, last times, last days, and the study of it. And there is a vision that is given to King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Daniel is called upon to interpret it. It is a fascinating chapter that both is in time for Babylon in 536 B.C. or so, or a little bit before that, 605 B.C., and it projects into the future the history of the world and the culmination of all things. As you might imagine, we're not going to be able to get into every single detail of this chapter, but I hope that we'll get the flow and what God wants us to have this morning. The last week that we were together, John was here and he opened up the word and we looked at Daniel's life. And uh, boy, I just don't know how to not emphasize enough that Daniel was placed into a culture that sought to redefine who he was as a person. Can you imagine living in a society that wants to redefine who you are as a human being? We live in that day. And how do you keep your identity of who you really are? I said in Thornton last week that every human being gathered here, but on my heart especially are people who are under 25, who are under the influence of cultural pressures about how to find your identity. That we all need to stand together to resist anything except what God says about us. We are created in the image of God. We bear His image. It's broken by the fall but it is redeemed through Jesus. You are infinitely valuable and of great worth to God and to us because you are a human being. That's what God says about you. He says about you that you are a sinner and that you need to be redeemed through the grace of Jesus, and you can be. And all your sins can be washed away, and you can be to God, His own son and daughter, whom He loves and whom He embraces and to whom He will give eternal life. That is who you are. We live in an indoctrination camp, just as Daniel did. He had to learn a new language, new courses of study that included astrology and the occult. He was given a new name. His whole world was ripped away from him. And yet he stood in that place, knowing his God, loving his God, following his God. He is 
a model for us today. What we find out in chapter 1, in verse 17, is that God was with him. It says there, as for these four youths, his three friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We're just told that Daniel was given this capacity from God that is going to come into play here in chapter 2 as we enter the second week. God gave him the ability to know that. And now we're going to get into the chapter, chapter 2, where the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has taken these captives and re-educated them, and now they're serving him. And we find in chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. Sounds fair and unverifiable. And the king said, the word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. So show me the dream and the interpretation. It's clear. And they answered a second time and said, well, let the king's tell the servant the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. And they go back and forth together, and they're just certain if you tell us a dream, we'll make up an interpretation for you, and it will be, it will be known. And the king is putting them to the test, and he's going to destroy them all if they can't. It is the content of the dream, the vision that God is going to give to Daniel. But in verse 10, you'll see... That the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, this is an impossible task. I love that the Bible puts an impossible task in front of God's people. It can't be done. They say it. The king probably knows it. And he's grasping for an answer. But only the gods could do this. You see that phrase? And their dwelling is not with flesh. And it wasn't until... Until it was when Jesus Christ came into the world and the only true God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no God like our God. And they admit it. It is an impossibility. But I just want to remind you that when things are impossible, that's when God does great work. 
And you say, well, this, this is a massive impossibility. But this is where God is going to enter in. With God, all things are possible. Now, he doesn't do everything the same. In fact, I think we made the point last week that these events that happen in Daniel's life, I think it would be hard for us to press them to be normative and prescriptive. They are God entering into a world, but there are certain things that are absolutely prescriptive for us. They're descriptive of how God worked with Daniel, and we want to take them and put them into practice in our own life. When you face an impossibility, as was the case here, there is only one thing to do. You'll notice in verse 12 and beyond, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men be destroyed. And this is going to include Daniel. They're going to be killed. And so the decree went out. And the decree went out that this impossible task was going to be pressed in to every person and wise men. We didn't mention at the end of chapter 1, Daniel was thought to be by the king 10 times greater than all the others. So somehow the word about this requirement, that you've got to tell me the dream, tell me what it means, is filtering now to Daniel in verses uh, 12 and 13. Verse 14, you see Daniel's response. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. I love that verse. It, it tells us something about Daniel, who at a young age has both prudence and discretion. And he's able to answer in this moment in a winsome way. And something has happened in him. The ability to keep calm under a very severe trial and under pressure and to think quickly and to exercise faith in that moment of crisis these are the aspects of the prudence and discretion that Daniel had. God had given him this, this ability to listen carefully, to weigh the situation, to be calm under pressure, to be calm in the face of what seems impossible. Verse 16, verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation of the king to the king. So Daniel's like slowing everything down to the best of his ability. And he's going to show the king what this means. What does Daniel do next? Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and he made the manner known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from God the God of heaven, concerning the mystery. Why? So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. I love the picture that Daniel, calmly, with discretion and courage, actually goes in before the king. King, I wish I had the whole conversation, but you said I'm 10 times better. Would you just give me some time? I need time, and I'm going to give you the vision. And there's a faith in Daniel in that moment under the pressure to keep trusting God and to saying to the king, you just give me the time I need and I'll be right back. And he goes back to his house and he speaks to his buddies and they had a prayer meeting. And God's going to show him the vision. Before we move on from this, 
If we put ourselves in that position, would you have the faith when the threat of death is imminent to say, hold on a second, I just need to pray and God will give us an answer. When we're not always certain that God's going to give us the answer that we need. But Daniel was certain that God had put him in that place, that God had already blessed him. I want to give you four things that help our faith grow in impossible situations. The first is they grow by experiences. Our faith grows by experiences. So here we are in year three, somehow in the accounting, whether some part of all three years, Daniel comes in, he goes through all this training, and here it is that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but Daniel has now been there the better part of two and a half to three years when this dream comes. So what you know is that Daniel has already been in a place where he has exercised his faith, think last week, where he said, I belong to the Lord and there's no way I'm going to eat that food because I'm, I'm not going to defile myself. And Daniel takes a step in there and that faith begins to be a foundation for him for future decisions. So would you not agree that our faith today is in some measure representative of all the prior experiences of our life where we had to trust God and he came through for us and he was always faithful and here we are today in the face of some greater impossibility for which we have to trust God. How many of you have been through an experience who said, I grew from that experience, and I trust God more today because of that? Uh, young people, look around the room. All of us old people are saying, life teaches you things, and you learn as you grow. And if you want to grow in faith, then you take every experience that you're in, particularly the experience that you're in right now today, and faith grows by those experiences. In fact, the Bible tells us that fools don't learn. Fools keep repeating the mistakes that they made. But wise men and women learn. The picture is gross. The dogs return to their vomit. They keep making the same mistakes over and over again. But because we belong to God, we go through these experiences and they're hard and they feel like they're crushing and Daniel's had them. And yet he's standing here today in this experience facing an absolute impossibility, knowing that prior experiences have helped him there. The second thing that helps our faith grow is the word of God. It's not really in this passage, except that Daniel has some, had some opportunity to hear the prophets. He's had the prophets in their mind. And I want you to know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So as you hear a message every week here, or you're studying the Word of God on your own, what you know is happening is that as you listen to the Word of God and respond to it, and God shows you something in the Word of God, you have in that moment the opportunity to say yes to God to what you hear or no to God. And when you say yes to God, you grow in faith, and then you're able to grow more. We all want to grow in faith, and Daniel's now in this place where he needs faith in a great way. We said last week 
that all these things that are written in the Old Testament are written for our instruction, that by the enduring study of them, we might persevere and have hope. So I just want to encourage you to be in the Word of God, not only here and what you hear today. I pray God will help you say yes to God about what you hear. The third way we grow in faith is in prayer. And the first thing Daniel does is he goes to prayer. David returned to his house and made the matter known to his friends, and he said, we need to seek the mercy of God. That's what we need more than anything else. And so they begin to pray. The first response is prayer. A lot of times our last response is prayer. I can't think of anything else to do, so let's pray. But what if our first response was prayer? That would help our faith grow. Lord, I, I, I want to pray. This reminded me this week of another, another hero in the Old Testament faith of Nehemiah who went back after the captivity to rebuild the wall. And he also had an interchange with the king. In Nehemiah chapter 2, the king looked at him and said, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And there's just a little phrase. I love it. It's a small verse in verse two, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. And the king said to me, why are you so afraid? Why is your face sad? And I was afraid. And so I prayed. That's a great verse. I was afraid, so I prayed. And then he answered the king. And he didn't answer before he prayed. What if we prayed all the time? What if we prayed without ceasing, as Paul said? This is the language of how faith grows, by our experience, by the study of the Word of God, and by pray. And can you see the last one here? It's in uh, the end of verse 17. He went back to his house, and he prayed with his, his companions. Faith grows by our associations. And he had three friends, and they're named there. Their Hebrew names are given to us here. Um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these are companions with him who prayed like they were partners. They were prayer partners with him. I don't know if you have prayer partners. How many of you have prayer partners? You have people that you pray with. They will help your faith grow. And we're all going to face impossible situations as Daniel did. And the things that will help us stand in tomorrow's impossibilities will be yesterday's experiences in which we trusted God, our study of the Word of God and its building up of our hearts, our commitment to pray and trust God to work in situations that we can't do it, and our associations who are around us who stand with us. That's exactly where Daniel is in this situation. And this is a part of his winsome person. So what happens? Well, God gives an answer, and that's in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel blessed God, and he breaks out into a benediction, a praise of God. I want to put it on the screen. It's verse 20. And um, if you haven't been with me yet, come back, take a deep breath, and let's read this as Daniel's benediction to God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise 
and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. That's the way Daniel woke up. He had a dream, and in his dream, he saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he woke up and said that. What if we put that on a three-by-five card and woke up every morning and said, blessed be the name of God. To you belong wisdom. To you belongs might. You change the times. You change the seasons. You raise up kings. You set them down. You give wisdom to the wise. Why? Because wise seek wisdom. God, you give understanding and knowledge to those. You reveal deep and hidden things. You know what's in the darkness. What if we woke up every morning and said, God, you know what's in the darkness. You know what's in my heart. And you dwell in light. There is no shadow of turning with you. Thou changest not. You are the same. God is light. And in him there is no dark. You, what if we started our day this way? This is what Daniel started his day. He woke up after his dream and said that. And to you, O God, my God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise that you've made known this matter to me. Now listen, the vision now. Shall we talk about the vision? The vision is a statue that is an imposing statue. And I believe that the whole purpose of this vision is to underscore that God himself determines when the events of history take place and how long they take place and how long they endure. And Daniel is saying these words, you remove kings and set up kings while he is in Babylon which marks the end of, Bible students are thinking, he's saying, you set up kings and take down kings while he's in Babylon. And the kingdom of Saul and David and Solomon and the hundreds years of kings of Israel and Judah is over. And essentially the Davidic kingdom has come to an end and now it's the kingdom of the Gentile rulers, and Israel never reestablishes itself. In the Old Testament history, as God's united people back in the land, in the same sense that they did, and he is saying while he's experiencing this, blessed be the name of God forever. Now verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man or enchanter or magician or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king had and has asked for. But there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the, I underlined it, in the latter days. Now you get the tone of where this vision is going. There is a God in heaven who revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar by this vision what's going to happen in the latter times. That's the word 
eschatos, eschatology, the end. It's, it's the same idea here, the latter days. And so I think the ultimate purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is to assert the sovereign rule of God over all the affairs of mankind and over all the kingdoms of the world. And it shows the growth of a Gentile domination in world kingdoms and powers and how they were ultimately destroyed by the coming kingdom of the messianic kingdom that will be established and will last forever. So let's look. Verse 31. Here it is, King. You saw a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, Verse 31, stood before you and its appearance was frightening and the head of the image was fine gold and the chest and the arms were of silver in the middle and thigh were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. This image has been interpreted then with the verses from 36 down to about 41, a further interpretation of them, as the kingdom of Babylon as the head to be succeeded by the Medo-Persians as the silver trunk, and then the, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great as the bronze, which was taken over by the Roman empire which lasted about 500 years, all the way to take us to about 400 A.D. Most commentators that are conservative think that the image of the statue was to say that the kingdoms of the Gentile nations were going to move from you, O great Nebuchadnezzar, head of gold, down through the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans as a picture of the coming earthly kingdoms of the Gentiles that displaced the people of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. You are the head of gold. But something happens to this statue, verse 34. As you looked at this grand statue, which is, by the way, terrifying to him. It's, he can't sleep. It's frightening. He doesn't know what it means. But as you looked, a stone was cut out by human, by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. If, in fact, and I think they do, these parts of the statue portray kingdoms of this world, something happens with a stone that is cut out by no human hand that in the image of his dream comes and destroys all of the statue, and if they're kingdoms, all of those kingdoms. There is something about that stone cut out by no human hand that supersedes all of those other kingdoms. Verse 36 says, this is the dream. I'll tell you the interpretation. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the Lord God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory into whose hand he's given, whether they all, whether they dwell, children of men, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, 
making you rule over all of them, you're the head of gold. That's you. And then the other kingdoms that follow. Verse 35 says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces by this stone that was cut out by no human hand. And they became as chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Well, if that vision comes to reality, when does that happen? That something comes and presses in on the kingdoms of this world so that they are fully destroyed and there is nothing left of them. Verse 35, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Most commentators believe, and I'm among them, that then that this stone that is cut out is the coming messianic kingdom of Jesus who brings an end to all human kingdoms and empires. And you're getting a glimpse in the book of Daniel, 600 years before Jesus even came, that this vision was going to tell the story, perhaps, of Gentile kingdoms that were going to come. And at some point, some great stone the cornerstone is going to come out of heaven and all of the kingdoms of this world are going to be wrapped up and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and everybody said. Okay, some of you said hallelujah. Yes, that's right. And he shall reign forever and you sing the hallelujah chorus. This is a, the picture of I think what we're seeing here in this place. Now, this is where some of you are going to be unsatisfied because there's a lot of detail here, but let me, let me just say what I think is happening. Um, I don't think the prophecy purports to describe every one of the world powers that are going to exist or tend to be exhaustive, but to describe the course of human history from the Babylonian captivity to the consummation of the messianic kingdom that is going to come when this rock comes to rule. You can notice in the image a deterioration and decline that each part of the statue deteriorates in value and weight and power and becomes brittle. And I think that's to show clearly a little bit of the temporary nature of human earthly kingdoms compared to the eternal reign of God that will be forever and ever. And there's a marked contrast between the metals of the image and the uncut stone made without hands, which seems to indicate a transition from the human efforts of earthly kingdoms to the eternal kingdom of God and what happens when the divine judgment of the final king comes to make all things right in earthly kingdoms. I think that's the picture of what's happening. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, Daniel's still speaking, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. There'll never be a succeeding people. It'll be his kingdom forever. And it shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand, how long? Forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut up a mountain by no human hand, it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, 
a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. If you think of the story, I think Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and I think the dream is probably saying, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen after me? Well, you're going to be taken over. You're going to live. You're the golden, but there's someone else coming. This is the dream. It's certain. This is the interpretation. It's sure. We tried to sort it out. Daniel said that. I'm not saying that. I mean, some of these things we're going to study and, and look at. But what happens when Daniel gives all of this to King Nebuchadnezzar is he does an amazing thing in verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said to him, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And I think inside his heart he said, That is what I dreamed. I don't think he had a conversion. And he just bowed down before Daniel because Daniel represented the God who gave this answer. But what is true about his pronouncement is this. Daniel, your God is the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. And I'm reminded of what the New Testament says, every knee shall bow before him. And we will. So some of you are going to go away from here and you're going to sort out some of these eschatological nuances and have fun. But I hope all of you will look at the life of Daniel and say, this is a teenager who stood in the gap, drew a line, went to prayer. God met him in his prayer and he stood with courage to say, this is how your kingdom is going to come to an end. And if it is true that there is a rock not made with hands that is coming out of heaven, a cornerstone that is going to come, then, then we know that the kingdoms of this world in all their decay are going to eventually become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he is going to rule forever and ever. When the Lord Jesus comes back, I, I think it's a picture of the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. You think about that. And may God help us live until it comes. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to see a man of faith in that spot who prayed, drew near to you. You met him there. And I pray for anybody who's facing something today that feels impossible. And needs to be needs to be full of faith. I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us to have hope because of the words that we've looked at today. And Lord, we thank you that kingdoms come and go. We're in a culture. Feels like it's going. But you're in charge. You're in charge of the ones who are in charge. And I pray that we'll be able to live in the day in which we are faithful as Daniel was. Strengthen our hearts for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.